Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow on Twitter at TweetJHood. We turn to Earl Bennett, friend of the program from the Pro Style Podcast. Wherever you download your podcast, look for Pro Style Podcast. Former Chicago Bear joins me, Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000. Earl, as always, I appreciate it, my man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Exciting time, draft coming up. And we got to see what the Chicago Bears are going to do. Uh, I want to talk to you about that, but I want to find out and check in with you and your family. How's everything going during this uh, pandemic we're going through? Uh, all is well. We're just nestled in the house, just trying to, you know, figure out things to keep the kids busy. You know, we're trying to stay busy ourselves with, you know, little activities that we do around the house. But it's definitely challenging. Uh, everyone just, you know, stay at home. You can save lives and continue to just wait this out and, and see what our government can do. What was uh, 2008 like for you in Vanderbilt as the draft was coming? What was the process like for you? Uh, it, it was interesting because I honestly had no clue if I was going to enter the draft or not. I was a junior, had spoke with Mel Kuyper, Ty McShay, uh, my financial advisor, uh, reached out to a couple other people just to see where I'd be drafted at. And once I got my draft grade back, it was the third round. So we felt kind of comfortable moving forward. So when, you know, you move forward, you hire agent and all these, your, your life just changed. Like everything changed. Now you have this huge team that works for you, people that are telling you where to go train at and who to talk to and how to talk and represent yourself in front of the masses. So it was interesting. And draft day was one of those days that, you know, no one could predict or, or know who would draft you. So, I went and played golf the first round. I'm not a golf guy, but I guess just the jitters. Uh, my dad wanted to go do some stuff. So went and played golf first round. Second round, I thought I'd be, you know, selected somewhere in there, but there wasn't a receiver drafted in the first round, so everybody got pushed back around out of the zone. And I actually fell asleep, right? So the next day, uh, it, it was about probably like nine, ten o'clock. I thought the draft actually started at like 11 or 12. So I was still sleeping. My agent had been trying to call me and my mom came in the room and was like, Hey, have your phone been ringing? I'm like, no, it's like, well, this is your agent. He's been trying to call you. And so I pick up the phone. He's like, Hey, uh, you want to be drafted by the Chicago bears? You might want to answer that phone call. <laughs> They've been calling you for quite some time. And so, I picked it up. It was them dialing on the other end, and and we had a good talk. And asked me that I wanted to come to Chicago Bears. So it was it was interesting just to see how everything unfolded. Well, <laughs> come on, man! It's a dress draft day. You expected to be drafted, correct? Yeah, yeah, I expected to be drafted, but I I just got the time wrong. I thought the the second day, which you know back then they did the first two rounds, so I thought the second day was. You know, it, it'd be a little later. It was on Saturday, so I figured it'd give everybody time to get up, get breakfast. You know, I thought I had some time, but no, it was, I was asleep when they were trying to draft me. That's the honest truth. <sighs> okay. I just want to know what that night was beforehand for you to be sleeping so late. That's, that's what I want to know. Like, what, what was you doing that night I mean, to sleep in so late to get that late breakfast dinner, old Bennett? That's what I want to know. That's, that's the story. Are you going to say that for the podcast, or are you going to bring that out here? Oh, man. I... Well, we just party. We just had a good time. I was like, you know, I didn't get drafted in the first or second round. I might not get drafted, but I left school early, probably threw my life away. So let's party the night away. And 
we had we had fun. You know, it was, I probably went to bed at like four or five o'clock, and you know, who knows? I was like, if I get drafted at this point, it's whatever. So, uh, you know, and I'm thankful that the Bears did. They kept calling, so it worked out. Earl Bennett with me, Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. I want to. We have not spoken since free agency, Earl. So I just want to go over with you some of the offseason moves that the Bears have made, including uh, having Quinn on the defensive side, Jimmy Graham at tight end, and Nick Foles coming over. What did you think of what the Bears did uh, in the offseason? I think they picked up some very key players. I think Robert Quinn would be that guy to come in, uh, be a great pass rusher because you're playing against Aaron Rodgers and Kirk Cousins that finally showed up, you know, this past year that he can throw the ball. So you definitely need somebody that can get out to those guys and with Stafford too. So I love that signing. But Jimmy Graham, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out uh, why would they sign a player on the other side of 30 because, Jimmy Graham, yes, he's a solid guy. He can block, but I think they could have addressed this in a draft. Uh, I think of a, a, a Vandy guy, Jared Pigney, who didn't have a great uh, a combine, but who made around a guy that is similar to Jimmy Graham, but younger, could have got him at a, a discount. So when I see the, when I saw the Jimmy Graham uh, ordeal, it, it, it was it was a head scratcher because they do need help on the offensive line and. They really didn't address that in free agency. And now you're wondering if you're going to bring in one or two rookies to help you out. And I just don't know if that will fit well right now in the NFL. I I was floored by not just the, the, the selection, but the money that was doled out to Jimmy Graham. Because, Earl, I mean... It's cool, man. It's, this is a young man's game. And if you're still playing in it, you know, God bless you that you're still playing. But you have to play and be productive. And I just thought watching him in Green Bay, I didn't see anything that told me, yeah, this is a guy that Trubisky should hook up with. He's a veteran, but you still need more production than what we saw even last year from him. Absolutely. If your primary goal is to get the best out of Mitchell Trubisky, then you need to put great skill players around him. Jimmy Graham, at this point, he just played with Aaron Rodgers, who was arguably you know, one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL, and he couldn't get the job done with Aaron. And clearly they let him walk because they, they figured they can just find another guy and just you know, slot him in his position. And so by the Bears picking up Jimmy Graham and you know basically giving him, what, $6 million signing bonus, that is a lot of money for a guy his age and the lack of production that he had and Green Bay. So, it, you know, I, I, maybe they're going to use them more as a blocker. I mean, but you do still have Trey Burton. They still need to figure out what they need to do with that position. But, you know, I, I saw them add a lot of defensive backs. I saw them, you know, bring in a pass rusher and, and really trying to, you know, make that defense a, a staple in the NFL, which is great. It's awesome. But nowadays, we've seen the Kansas City Chiefs. If you cannot score points, you're not going to win. So I, I, they need to make some real drastic changes come here in this draft and, and get some guys that can help them offensively. See, Pro Style Podcast, wherever you download your podcast, look for Earl Bennett. He joins me, Jonathan Hood, as we talk Bears and the NFL draft on ESPN 1000 and ESPN Chicago app. So when it comes to Foles and Trubisky, so, you know, so funny. And you've been in the business, so you know this more than I. It just... 
these general managers just say whatever comes to their mind. Or like they, the press is right there, and they're asking <laughs> about Trubisky, and there is Ryan Pace. It's like, oh, you know, Mitch is going to be our starter in twenty twenty. We feel really good about Mitch. He makes all the throws. He does all like all this stuff, right? And then through the side door, here comes Nick Foles, right? It's just like, wait, <laughs> you told us on the thirty first of December that Mitch is our guy. We feel good about him. He's going to be our starter. And here comes Nick Foles. So when you saw Foles uh, become part of the Bears, what was your initial reaction? Well, I was a little excited because Nick Foles, he knows the offense. He was in Kansas City he, with the Eagles under Coach Peterson. So it's the same Andy Reid tree, right? So I'm excited from that perspective. But when you look at Nick Foles' production as a starting quarterback, he really only had one really good year, and that was with Chip Kelly. 27 touchdowns, two interceptions in 2013. I mean, those numbers are fantastic. If they can get that Nick Foles, you start him right away. But when you look after that, I mean, it was a, a really bad decline with Nick Foles as a starting quarterback. Nick Foles as a backup quarterback midseason – Oh, you love that guy because he come in, you know, he, he's well-rested. He's he's a guy that's been injured most of the season and that couldn't play, and he has some fresh legs, and you know he's going to be faster than everyone. He's going to be super juiced up to play. And that's what you get out of Nick Foles mid-season. So, initially, Ron Pace may be right. Hey, Mitch is our starting quarterback. Week four or five, those things could change, and they may hand it over to Nick Foles. So is that how you think it's going to roll out? Because that, I, I expect – I'm just going to compare notes with you, Earl. I think that Trubisky starts the season, right? It's going to be – it's not even a real competition because it's not like it was back in the day, like you really had to compete. Even though the money's out there for Foles, I think that Trubisky starts. And if he falters, like we may not see Mitch again in a Bears uniform, and that's real talk. Like Because Pace knows that his job is on the line here. Whether he keeps it after this upcoming season or next year, just the money that he paid for veteran guys that are 30 and older tells me that there's some desperation there and that his some of his draft picks didn't work out. So I'm thinking it starts with Trubisky, and then if it doesn't work, Foles is going to be right there, and then Trubisky we never get a chance to play again, especially if Foles stays healthy. Absolutely. I, I, I definitely see Mitch starting off the season as the starting quarterback unless something catastrophic happened in training camp where Mitch hurt his shoulder, hurt a knee, or get injured any sort of way. But when you look at what management is doing with Ryan Pace, it's really trying to fill those holes if, right? If Mitch doesn't work out, then we can bring in Nick Foles. If Robinson doesn't work out, we have Robert Quinn. So you're bringing in the older guys that you know have been productive in the league to fill those holes to be the what if. But honestly, I feel like this is a make-it-or-break-it year for Ryan Pace, and they have to show up. Otherwise, if they have another, you know, let's and give them more than enough time to really try to turn this franchise around, and it just hasn't happened. But, yeah, when I look at some of these guys who are on the other side of 30, who are older, they've been productive in spurts. Now it's about can they put it back together to be productive for the Chicago Bears in 2020? We'll see. Have you uh, have you taken a look at the amount of wide receivers that's going to become? There's some Earl Bennett's in this draft. Have you seen this? 
Have you seen this the list? The wide receiver draft is absolutely phenomenal. I like Justin Jefferson, the kid from LSU, because he can play inside. He can play outside. He he is just a really good craftsman when it comes to route running. So he's probably my favorite. And, you know, I mean, you have the kid from, from Alabama, Jerry Judy, who also runs great routes. But, they, I mean, you could just go on and on with this draft. You could find a gem in the fourth, fifth round that could have been easily, you know, a, a second, third round draft pick had they been, you know, a, a year later. So there's a lot of guys that you can Maybe the Bears, you know, draft a wide receiver in the fourth, fifth round again because, I mean, yeah, you got Allen Robinson and Anthony Miller, but outside of that, you really don't have guys that have been productive at the wide receiver position. Maybe you can steal a guy late. Who knows? I'm looking at this list in front of me, Earl. I'm just telling you that these these prospects, and as an SEC guy, when I'm seeing Judy and I see Ruggs and I see CeeDee Lamb from Oklahoma, right? And then we go, you mentioned Justin Jefferson. This guy could be first round or early second, depending on where what a team needs. But he is a he was terrific. If anyone watched the national championship game or watched the, the role that LSU went on with Joe Burrow, Justin Jefferson was so key. You go to Chase Claypool from Notre Dame. T. Higgins, solid for Clemson. Uh, elite level hands and skills. Uh, Michael Pittman from USC. It's 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 quite the list because. And here's the thing that's so funny. Like I watch so much college football on Saturdays. I'm like, yep, I know him. Yep, I've seen him. Yep, I've seen him. And just, you'll go through like all these guys are difference makers. Like Van Jefferson from Florida. Uh, Duvernay from Texas. There's there's some quality. So if the Bears are looking. You got to find someone because you have no other choice. They're right there in front of you. Exactly. You have Donovan Peoples Jones, who is a, a big body receiver, 6'2, 200 pound guy. I've got a chance to watch him play when he was at Michigan. I love his run out to the catch. He's one of those guys that he kind of reminds me of Brandon Marshall. You know, once they get the ball, they're very. Uh, they're very explosive, not in terms of speed, but just with the force that they run with. So I like that kid a lot, too. And Brian, it was out of South Carolina. And everybody guy, 6'3", who can also get the job done. And, you know, you always got to throw uh, – you know, I'm a Vandy guy, so I can't really side too much with the University of Tennessee. But Jawan <laughs> Jenkins, he, he, he made some really big plays. He's a guy that can go up and catch the 50-50 balls and does a great job in the red zone. But, yeah, the Bears – I mean, if, they, if they're looking to add to that wide receiver depth, you can definitely add a solid guy in the later round. Yeah, uh, Vandy's got Lipscomb. He's in is in his draft. This guy was good. Could be uh, middle to to the bottom of the second round. Lipscomb is a uh, is a guy that could be looking someplace here. I'm seeing his stats as well. So Vandy's represented. He's they're represented hey, Ryan, too. Hey Ryan Pace, if if you're looking for a solid wide receiver that can come in and fill that slot position, all right. Kalaja Lipscomb is your guy. And we've seen what Vandy guys do in a Bears uniform. So if, if that's the type of player you're looking for, a guy that's solid, great route running, excellent hands, good run out the catching, a great kid, hey, there he is. Go get him. Kalaja Lipscomb. There he goes. Lipscomb's agent, Earl Bennett, is with us here <laughs> on ESPN 1000. That Pro Style Podcast, it should be, you should be cooking, man, with, during draft time with the Pro Style Podcast. Yeah, yeah, the podcast is cooking. We also, also on Pro Style Media, we, we do a lot of stories. I got a pretty cool story I'm going to put out tomorrow. Oh. Uh, I, saw, I saw Russell Wilson just, you know, he, he just uh, – just just said the base, the gender of his child, he and his wife, Sierra. Uh, 
I unfortunately was on the other side of that. I made a huge mistake and revealed the gender of a teammate child a couple of years ago that I didn't know was a secret. So yeah, it, it'll be on it'll be on Pro Style Media <laughs> tomorrow. So be sure to check that out. Okay, <laughs> Earl, uh, I'm glad you spent some time. We're right here on the precipice of the draft, so I'm looking forward to seeing what the Bears do and hope to talk again soon. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me again, Hood. It is uh, Earl Bennett, uh, former Bears wide receiver, uh, part of the Pro Style Podcast. Download that wherever you download your podcast. Uh, speaking of the draft, coming up, we'll talk about the quarterbacks in the draft. Oh, you need the wide receivers are deep. These quarterbacks are very interesting. A lot of conversation about them. We'll discuss that next right here on Under the Hood. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. This is Chicago's home for sports. Stream ESPN 1000 easily on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. You're listening to Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. I am excited about the amount of quality that will be in this draft. Sometimes you'll have hyperbole, right? And there will be some experts telling you about how great this is, this draft is, or certain players, or certain. I'm telling you right now, I'm really excited about what we're going to see with this draft. And usually, I'll be honest, if you've listened to me for a few years, you know. I usually get a little sad during the draft because I invest so much time in watching some of these great players in college that it's almost like you're watching your kid graduate and there's tears like, oh, my baby's growing up so much. And the same thing with me as a college football fan. Invest watching these players two, three, four years in college and paying dividends for their team. And then you see them go off to the NFL. It's like, oh, I spent so much time watching you on Saturdays, watching you in bowl games and stuff. Because I am a huge college football fan. I, I prefer college over the NFL uh, 10 times out of 10. I enjoy my Saturdays being able to watch. I got myself invested in watching the um, watching the uh, college uh, football on Saturdays because I can be ready for the draft. So there's so many people that you're going to listen to that do what I do for a living, talk about, oh, yeah, I always knew Antonio Gibson was a good player when I watched him in Memphis as a running back. They didn't watch him. They just read about him. But if I'm spending time watching these players on Saturday, then I can be a little bit more... Um, learned when it comes to the draft so i want to make sure that i was into it and that's why i enjoy my saturdays because when it comes to the draft i'll be ready and the quarterbacks i'm ready for because joe burrow is a terrific quarterback but but here's the thing i watched him and have a magical season with the tigers and I don't see like the explosion of him being this great quarterback, but I think that he can settle in and be a really solid quarterback for Cincinnati. And, and, and the whole thing is like if Burroughs with a good team, I can see Burrow actually being able to develop quicker and be in a big spot and, and help a team. But when you're at the bottom of the barrel, like being with the Bengals and if he sucks the first couple of years, you're like, Oh, Joe Burrow was a bust. Well, maybe if the team doesn't have anything around them, Joe Burrow will be a bust for sure. The big question is about Tua Tungo-Vailoa. Okay, so Tua Tungo-Vailoa is a, a quarterback that, listen, as a Georgia fan, gave me nightmares, right, to, to watch him uh, with the southpaw, with the big arm from the left side. And I just need to know which Tua we're going to see. 
Uh, I remember Chris, Adam, and I working Chicago's College Tailgate, our college football show every year, and we were watching Tua get smashed and that bad injury that he had, right? It was so horrible to watch that injury that knocked him out of college football. But we continue to hear mixed reviews. Some people say that in the workouts he had that Tua was not ready, that did not have a good workout uh, because of the injuries he suffered. didn't seem the same. And others say, yep, he's identifying blitzes. He's very good in the pre-snap. He can be able to separate from defenders. He's doing just fine. So I don't know what to believe until we actually see him on the field. But I just know what I saw from him, that big windup from the left side. I'm like, that will be interesting to see how that works on the, um, the NFL level. In college, especially against my team, worked out very well. Justin Herbert was a four-year starter at Oregon. Elite arm, um, a guy that's 6'5", 6'6", and a guy that is durable. I... I, I I saw him somewhat at Oregon at some times, and I just thought that he was good. I just need to know, is it the system or is it Justin Herbert that can be able to lead uh, a team? I think he can succeed on the next level. I just want to know in that pistol offense whether or not he's going to be able to showcase the ability that he had uh, on the pros, on the pro level like he did in college. Jalen Hurts, we just talked about Jalen Hurts um, earlier in the show. I, I love his leadership ability, number one. That, that's number one. And I, I could look at Jalen Hurts and say, this guy can win with a lot of different ways because he was a winner at two Power Five legendary institutions with completely different offensive systems. So it doesn't matter how short he is. He's got a big arm. He's got leadership. Uh, and he can run the ball well when he needs to get out of the pocket. But I, I want to just accentuate the point. At Alabama and at Oklahoma, two different systems offensively, and he flourished in both. So, I mean, Jalen Hurts can play on the next level. Jordan Love from Utah State. You know, again, watched him at Utah State just a couple times. Davis, did Utah State, did Notre Dame play Utah State? Not this year. Not this no, year. not this year. I want to say I thought I'm – I know I know. I saw Jordan Love not very often – because it's Utah State, right? But I know enough 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 to know that he's got big playability. He has a deep ball, tremendous velocity. Um, but I'm just going by what I'm reading outside of watching like five or six games of his. Because again, it is Utah State, and so you know he's he's a question mark for some on whether or not he can be able to get it done on the next level. So those are just among the quarterbacks I'm excited to see on the next level in the NFL. All right, we got tales from the hood. That's next right here on UTH. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Hi, everybody. On ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports. ESPN 1000. What do you got there? This is your car. My car? I said a 10-second car, not a 10-minute car. Pop the hood. Pop the hood? Pop the hood. Tales from the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Here we go. Tales from the Hood right here on ESPN 1000 and the brand new ESPN Chicago app. Coming up next, we're going to hear from Barry Rosner. It's got to be the first time in about over 20 years that Barry Rosner has been on ESPN 1000. Barry Rosner will be with me to talk about the late Jim Fry, the 
former manager for the Chicago Cubs for that magical 84 season and also the GM when the Cubs were in the uh, 89 playoffs, when they beat the Expos to get into the uh, playoffs. So we will talk to Barry Rosner about the late Jim Fry that's coming up. So if you're a Cubs fan, stay by your radio. That was a great season, 84, for the Cubs. Up 2-0 against San Diego, and then boom. Just don't know what Fry was thinking when he was managing the team. All right, Tales from the Hood. We always have a topic for you. We go to Facebook, facebook.com. A lot of this is behind the scenes or under the hood. Who is the most underrated actor or actress in movies or TV shows in your lifetime? Who is the most underrated actor or actress in movies or TV shows in your lifetime? You can call in if you care to, 312-332-ESPN. Or you can... Play along with us here on Facebook, facebook.com. And boy, what a thread. Facebook has just been amazing when it comes to memories and nostalgia. So I I put this out here earlier today because I was thinking about my choices for this. I think that Giancarlo Esposito is great in everything. Giancarlo Esposito, who is uh, great in uh, right now uh, Better Call Saul, is part of Breaking Bad as well. But... Davis, he's been in uh, so many different things in a career arc that's lasted over, what, four decades, I want to say. Yeah, absolutely. Such range as an actor. Just, just, Such range. Just, just tremendous. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we talk about, I said on Twitter earlier, like, you know, we start giving our people um, flowers while they're alive. Well, Giancarlo Esposito deserves to be in a position where he gets his flowers. You know, whatever award show, whatever TV one or BET show, it's like, give him his flowers now, Giancarlo Esposito. And for the actress, well, I think you and I have talked about this before, like Regina King deserves her acclaim right now. Yeah, that would be my pick. She Uh is absolutely amazing, vastly underrated, and for a lot of people, definitely uh, a crush going back to 227. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no place like home. <laughs> no place like home. <laughs> so, Joe McCardle of our staff says, you are in my mind. Dude, I love her. Did you watch The Leftovers on HBO? I have not, Joe, but I will check that out. She was amazing in that show. I don't know if she's underrated per se, but she is riveting to watch. Yeah, I think she is underrated. I, I don't think enough people know how great Regina King is. And I go through this list here of... And, and here's... I need you to be the sounding board for this, Davis, of some of these names, right? Yeah. So Al Grillo says John Goodman is underrated. I don't believe that's true. Um, is he? Uh, maybe because of Roseanne, people thought he was hilarious in that. Um, oh, movie- he was he was fantastic in that movie with Denzel. Yeah, uh, but but I mean, is he underrated? No, I wouldn't say. I think I he gets I mean, plenty of flowers. Okay, so uh, yeah, flowers. And, yeah. yeah, flowers and no flowers, right? Yeah. John C. Riley. Um, just. I think he's a, a, a good he's, actor. Yeah, fairly. He gets enough bouquets. Okay. Yeah. Gary Oldman, a guy could play any role. Mm. I like Gary Oldman. But so do yeah, I. I think a lot of people still give him his flowers, though. That, that's from Bradley Michael checking in. Says uh, Gary Oldman. Here's one. Paul Giamatti. Mm. Yes. So, so Brian Solar, Solar says uh, that I can think of. I, I can't think of a better actor who really only has. Too many that guy credits. I can't think of a better guy who really only has too many that guy credits. Meaning that, uh, well, I don't think that's underrated though. You see, see, people know him from so many ter- terrific movies, and now he's on billions. And I think that you could put him in that category of hey, great actor, small screen, you know, big screen as in, in movies. 
I don't think he's underrated, though. Yeah, I think he's appreciated. He might be slight because his range is amazing. He can go from billions, serious. He's played the bad guy. He's played the good guy. And then he can play Big Mama's house. I mean, the guy... <laughs> the guy can get coming. it done. He definitely has range as an Big, actor. Big Mama's house. Uh, here, here's one. Eric Collins comes through again. Eric Collins on the Facebook wall. You know, he says he says Joe Morton, mm. who was the dad, the dad of yes. the scandal. Yes. Who's played? Uh, see, I can't get to my MD, IMBD that uh, quickly. Let me see. Joe Morton is a terrific actor yes, he is. who has been on Broadway and uh, done so many. Joe Morton, take a look at his IMBD real quick. Oh, gosh. Oh, I didn't know he's in God Friended Me. I know. I, I, it's a show that I've stayed away from um, on CBS. Um, when you start trivializing the spirit as just a, a Facebook friend, I was like, I'm not watching this show. You've heard of this show, right? Yeah, I haven't checked it out yet. No, of course. Of course. I don't think but that A lot of people know him from uh, House, the series, Jag, the TV series, CSI, New York. The series. He's also done a lot of movies. American Gangster, The Good Wife, two thousand seven. Good Wife, yeah. Yeah. So you know, okay. Yeah. So he is that that dude. I think that is underrated. I think that's very well done. Yeah, I can go with that. All right. Flowers and no flowers for Don Cheadle. No, he gets too much love. In my opinion. <laughs> too much love. Yeah, Don Cheadle. The British accent was horrible. <laughs> you know, in the uh, well, the three movies with. Um, Oh, yeah, but he's it, in that in that series yeah. of of, um, of uh, eleven, twelve, and thirteen. Yeah, Ocean. Yes, Ocean's eleven, twelve, and thirteen. Yeah, Wowza. No, dude, the accent it didn't it didn't go for me. Um, he's had a plenty of. And he's, been, he's tied into the Avengers. He's he's been really blessed to be tied into a lot of great franchises. He's the only one that would think he's underrated, though. By the way, yeah. Don Cheadle. Yeah, <laughs> Don hey, Cheadle's his, not underrated. His music video with uh, Kendrick Lamar might be. One of his dopest accomplishments. If you if you haven't had a chance to watch it, that video he did with Kendrick Lamar was amazing. Okay, some people don't understand the word underrated, right? Yeah, so, obviously. D- Bob Dupree says Danny DeVito. No, no, and this is like this is. I'm not even talking Taxi Dan. I'm talking about Sunny, right? Right, the Philadelphia show. And honorable mention to Sam Jackson. Oh no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Samuel Jackson is underrated. <laughs> Absolutely not. Underrated? Nah. Luis Guzman. Everybody's sidekick. Because so so you take a look at Guzman and his uh, who's been around for a long time, by the way, his long career. I mean, here's a guy here that was in Mr. Wonderful Carlito's way. Um, Boogie Nights in '97, The Bone Collector. He was in that. I forgot he was in that movie uh, with Denzel Washington. I mean, he's been in a lot of movies for a long time. I don't think that Luis Guzman is underrated. I mean, he's been in television since 1977. I can see he, someone making an argument for that, though. I dude, can see it being debatable. He instead of a bouquet, I would give him like a single stem. He's 63. <laughs> He's still underrated. William H. Macy says Ryan Sudol. I don't think that's true either. As if nothing else for this show that he's on now. Yeah. 
I mean, it's been, uh, Dennis Farina's on this list, says Steve. No. No one that has been nominated for a serious award, Tony, Oscar, should ever be on this list. Don, Lance Jones, Don Cheadle again. I don't know if that's true. I just don't know. I, I consider Don Cheadle to be one of the top five, definitely, black actors of all time on most people's list right now, if you ask them straight up. Leslie Nielsen, says Dan Levy. No, don't think that's true. Nicole, my cousin, says Daniel Day-Lewis. I don't know if that's... Uh, uh, not now. Maybe a few years back. Maybe. Lavelle says Morris Chestnut. <laughs> he hasn't been... He's been playing Tyler Perry movies not to be... Uh, <laughs> Not to be underrated. I don't know if that's underrated or demotion. I, I, I don't know what's going on. Sam Elliott's on here. Oliver Pratt's on here. Oliver Platt's on here. Russell Hornsby. Russell Hornsby, says Russell Reggie Hornsby Hammond. Hornsby is very interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, now in that Bone Collector show, I don't even know if it's canceled on NBC or not, but he's always been that guy on certain shows, certain level shows. Um, so uh, give me your list because we got to get to a berry here. Well, I have two. My first one is Jeffrey Wright. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Wright, in my opinion, is one of the most underrated actors. Uh, the range he has, if you haven't seen the film he did in 2018 called OG, which talks about a, a, a young man that's been incarcerated for over 20 years and battling to fight the ills of protecting himself versus getting back out and getting back into society. It was a great film about being behind bars. He's also been a part of the last three James Bond movies. And then, of course, who can remember him being Peoples in Shaft, the movie, uh, famously known for that. And then my other candidate would be, man, I wish I had a drum roll I could throw in here right now. Let's see. A lot of this is behind the scenes or under the hood. That's my drum roll right there. Courtney B. Vance for multiple reasons. Ah. I just watched him in Uncorked on Netflix. Go check it out. Nice film. Very underrated. Famously known for playing opposite Whitney Houston in The Preacher's Wife. Mm -hmm. And the second reason he's underrated, the man pulled Angela Bassett. That's it. (laughs) He, man. He's a king for doing that. I don't know how he did it. It just popped up one day, and Angela Bassett is engaged to Courtney B. Vance. Like, what? Who was he? Yes. Yeah. If you've not seen Angela Bassett, she is very well-preserved. And as I would say, restaurant quality. And that, my friends, is Sales from the Hood right here on ESPN 1000 and the brand-new ESPN Chicago app. We'll talk about... um, the passing of Jim Fry, uh, manager for the Chicago Cubs with that fun 84 team, GM for the team in 89, uh, and have some Bulls and NBA talk at the top of the hour at 9 o'clock with former Bulls and Clippers coach Vinny Del Negro. All part of the mix right here on Under the Hood. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. This is Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. Follow at TweetJHood on Twitter. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. Chicago's home for sports. I want to win games. And I'm going to try everything I can to get Dallas Green to get the best players. And I'm going to try everything I can to make the players play better. 
And there is absolutely no other motivation I have for coming to Chicago. None. Absolutely none. Listen to those crowd. Might as well join them. Cubs are the champion. The Cubs are the champion. Congratulations, Jimmy. That was some embrace you and Dallas gave each other, and I can certainly understand it. Well, I tell you, a lot of people don't realize the things that are said and done, and 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 I appreciate the nerve that Dallas showed. And nobody in baseball works harder, and he, and he went out and did some things this year that took some nerve, and I, I appreciate it because he gave us some great players, Jack. My chances weren't that great, but I was the kind of guy who said, I'll show you, so I went out and showed him. And then when I went to manage and, and finally won, uh, went to the World Series with the, the Royals, I guess uh, that was the first time when I said, well, I, I guess I belong in the big leagues. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the brand new ESPN Chicago app. Uh, we're talking about uh, the loss of Jim Fry, uh, Cubs manager uh, back in the uh, early 80s with Kansas City and with the Chicago Cubs. Barry Rosner wrote a great piece in the Daily Herald. Go to dailyherald.com. Rosner, Jim Fry's Cubs legacy looms large, and Barry joins me here on ESPN 1000. Barry, as always, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Jonathan, been a long time. Always great to hear your voice. Absolutely. Uh, I want to talk to you post-Elia as we go into the the early 80s with Dallas Green. So at the time, if you're following baseball, this is a great opportunity for the Cubs to do some special things because Dallas Green was from the Philadelphia Phillies organization, and then Jim Fry comes along in 1984. What would you think of the Cubs under Dallas Green as Fry becomes the manager? Well, interestingly, the two men faced each other in the 1980 World Series, did Dallas Green and Jim Fry. So they knew each other well. And after Lee Ely was fired and they were searching for a new manager, Jim Fry was available. It was a great hire at the time. Fry's background was really um, pretty extraordinary. I mean, he had been a manager. He had been a scout. He had been a coach for a long time was a good minor league player, never made it to the majors, but was an extraordinary hitting coach. I mean, his some of the guys who uh, who blossomed under him included Gerald Strawberry, who he had for two years in New York, and, of course, George Brett in Kansas City. But um, it was really a conversation that took place in the spring of 94, I'm sorry, of 84, that, that changed the life and the career trajectory of Ryan Sandberg forever. If you... If you remember, John, he was uh, Sandberg was at the time a fairly light hitting, but but good hitting second baseman who who had had some gap power to right field, but mostly he went the other way, and he would pound the ball in the ground because when he was growing up in the Phillies organization, he was taught to hit the ball on the ground. He was fast, he could steal bases, and he was told pound it into the ground and get some infield hits and. Jim Fry was watching this during spring training in 1984, and he was having a conversation uh, during a card game with Billy Connors and Don Zimmer, his longtime friend who was now his third base coach, and Jimmy Snyder, who had known Sandberg from the Phillies organization. And he said to these guys, "Well, Sandberg's six foot two. He's got these long arms. He's got this nice reach. He's got a great arc. Why doesn't he ever pull the ball?" And Jimmy Snyder said. That's not what he does. He's not that kind of hitter. He's never going to be a power hitter. 
And Fry got up and started yelling. He couldn't understand it, and he was pacing around the room and cursing, and he said, this just doesn't make any sense. So the next day they were playing a game, a spring training game, and Sandberg grounded out to shortstop. And when he got back to the dugout, Fry stopped him, and he said, he said, Ryan, well, wouldn't you like to hit it out of the park once in a while and jog around the bases instead of busting it down to first on every play? And you'll be exhausted by June. And Sandberg said, yeah, okay, what do I do? So the next morning they met in a batting cage beyond the right field fence. It was very early. There was nobody else out there. It was just Fry uh, throwing soft toss to Sandberg. And he taught him how to open up his hips and how to pull that inside pitch. It was a pitch Sandberg had always had trouble with, hard sinkers inside and fastballs in on his hands. And he basically taught him how to open up and hit it to left field. He he basically said, for the rest of spring training, I want you to try to hit every ball foul by 40 feet on the left-hand side. just want you to pull everything and hit it as far foul as you possibly can. And so this was the beginning for Ryan Sandberg. As you know, he went from a guy who was a tremendous fielder and, and a fairly light hitter to winning the MVP in 1984. He made the all-star team, had that tremendous year with all the home runs and triples and doubles and everything else, won the MVP, and that was really the beginning of his Hall of Fame career. But uh, to your point about the 84 season, that was sort of the rebirth of a franchise. If you think about Jim Fry and Don Zimmer coming into the organization at 84. It's a team that hadn't made the playoffs in 39 years. And with those two around, they made the playoffs in 84. And uh, with Jim Fry as the general manager in 89, with Zimmer as his manager, they made the playoffs again. So historically speaking, a pretty important time for Cubs baseball. And, and those two, Jim Fry and Don Zimmer, were right in the middle of it. Barry Roser from the Daily Herald with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. And with that, Barry, just the stories that I've heard you say and so many others about the characters in that 84 team, that team um, meant a lot to me watching it. After watching the 83 White Sox and then seeing the 84 Cubs, just the, the personalities on this team, what, what stood out most about the personality? And where do you place the, that group of guys versus some of the others that you've covered? Well, I mean, it was it was an extraordinary group of veteran players who knew what they were doing. You know, they had this horrible spring training in 1984. And in the, I think it was with three or four days to go, that's when Dallas Green made the trade for Bob Dernier and Gary Matthews. And that sort of turned everything around. I mean, obviously you had the trade for Sutcliffe in June and the trade for Eckersley which solidified the rotation. I mean, Dallas hadn't planned to do that. He was rebuilding, much like you've seen Theo Epstein do and Rick Hahn do. Uh, That was Dallas Green's plan, was to rebuild. But suddenly, in the third year, Sandberg was becoming this guy. They had a chance to get some veteran pitching. Uh, Jody Davis was coming into his own. Leon Durham was coming into his own. Keith Moreland was was uh, a power guy in right field, but it was really that trade that sort of turned everything around. And Gary Matthews, talk about a character, that guy was a huge part of it. He was he was the enforcer, Jay. He was the guy who, if you know, he was batting behind Sandberg. And if anybody threw inside on Sandberg, <laughs> Gary Matthews would start screaming from the on-deck circle. In other words, if there's another one near him, especially near his head, you're going to have to deal with me. He was a very loud guy. He was 
he was kind of the guy that made that whole thing go. But, uh, you know, you had him, uh, you had, uh, you know, a few young guys like Sandberg and, and Jody Davis. Um, Bob Dernier was fairly young at the time. He solidified center field. But then you bring in Sutcliffe, and now it's a contest. Who's going to be the loudest guy in the room, Gary Matthews or Rick Sutcliffe? <laughs> uh, it, was a really, it was a really fun year. If you were a Cub fan, it was a surprise season. It was not anything that anyone expected. And for you know a couple generations of fans that had known nothing but losing, certainly the heartbreak of 69, it was a huge year. It sort of changed everything. And with the emergence of Sandberg as a star and with Harry Carey having been in the booth now on the north side for a couple of years, Wrigley Field became the place to be. I mean, it was – I think we all sort of have this impression of Wrigley Field as a place that was always filled, but it really wasn't until 1984. And that sort of turned around a franchise that hadn't done a whole lot. So about that uh, 84 team uh, led by Jim Fry, Barry, I mean, come on, you're up 2-0. What happened with the pitching rotation? What was Fry thinking? I mean, you had, you had, Sut- uh, uh, you had Sutcliffe, you got Trout. I mean, I mean, that was a quality team. What happened after the 2-0? Why, why didn't he go back to Sutcliffe? What, what was going on? I mean, come on now. Come on. Sanderson, well, I'm, Lynch, I'm, I'm sure come on. Heard, I'm sure you've heard Rick Sutcliffe tell this story, but when they left the ballpark uh, – after game three, most of them were under the impression that Sutcliffe was going to pitch game four. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you look back on it now in hindsight, obviously very easy to say it was a mistake. I thought it was a mistake at the time. Um, But he had his, you know, I'm sorry, uh, you know, he's thinking, look, we can, you know, if we can hold uh, Rick Sutcliffe, we've got him for game one of the World Series. You know, so you can see where his mind was going at that point. Obviously, they don't win game four. Sutcliffe has to win game five. It's just stunning that they couldn't win a single game in San Diego of those three. Um, I, you know, when you talk to Cub fans, uh, you know, really of any of the last three, four generations, They'll tell you that's the one, even more than 1969, that they never really got over. But, uh, hey, I can't argue with you. Sutcliffe should have started game four, especially because Steve Trout was on fire, absolutely on fire in the second half. So worst comes to worst, you got Trout for game five. But thank you, Jim. Jim uh, Fry got caught looking ahead to the World Series. Yeah, I think so, too. So I'll ask you about Jim Fry as a general manager, because, as you mentioned, the relationship that Fry had with Don Zimmer. And, again, 89 was also a very uh, a really fun team. Uh, that that was great. As uh, Fitzgerald, well, well, he, he struck out in that game. Was it, What was that pitch? Well, like t- 10 feet outside? Uh, and so just like the Orsalak played 84, I mean, that, that pitch was that Lee wire behind the plate. That was like 10 feet outside and Sutcliffe got the strikeout. Um, but, but what do you, what are your thoughts on Jim Fry as a GM, um, during that time? Yeah, well, you know, he, he, he's manager of the year in 84 In 85, they lost the entire starting rotation. They were two and a half games up in June. They lose five starting pitchers. And they, the 85 season obviously gets away from them. He gets fired in 86, spends 87 in the radio booth. And actually, as I remember it, he was pretty good as a color guy on radio. But after that season, Dallas Green gets fired by Tribune Company, and uh, they hire Jim Fry. 
and um, you know there were some <laughs> there were some trades that never made any sense, including the Lee Smith deal. And uh, obviously, people still remember the Rafi Palmero deal to get Mitch Williams. But on the other hand, 1989 never happens without Mitch Williams. So, um, you know, it's 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 hard to make a case for that one being a good one. But if you love the '89 season, you got to know that that season doesn't happen without Mitch Williams. Um, he was a good general manager. Uh, he wasn't a great general manager, um, like. Everyone else who's ever worked for Tribune Company, he never really got the chance to finish the job because uh, uh, 1990 was a disappointment. After the 90 season, they signed George Bell and Dave Smith and Danny Jackson. All three of them were hurt early in the 91 season. And then there's, of course, the famous firing of Don Zimmer, which really brought down the organization. At the end of the season, team president Don Granesco was fired. Jim Fry was fired, Jim Essian was fired, and that was that was the end of that. Um, but I can tell you from personal experience, working with those guys, working with guys like Jim Fry and Don Zimmer, uh, was was the best part of my career. They were old school guys. They were uh, they were honorable guys, respectful guys. Uh, they weren't always the most polite guys, but you know what? You knew where you knew where you stood with them. Uh, they didn't lie to you. They answered the phone when you needed something. And, uh, it, you know, if you had a great story, even if they couldn't comment on it, at least they could lead you in the right direction. You're either right or wrong. And they were a pleasure to work with. So that was a very enjoyable time for me in terms of my career. But um, I guess if you summed up Jim Fry's career as the general manager, at least he made the playoffs one year, and there were a lot of Cubs general managers who couldn't say that. The piece is entitled Jim Fry's Cubs Legacy Looms Large from the Daily Herald. Barry Rosner wrote that piece. Go to dailyherald.com and check that out. Barry, I'm glad you spent some time. Thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about uh, the, the legacy. Well, for whatever, whatever it was, it was a fun legacy for Jim Fry in 84 and 89. Jonathan, my pleasure. Anytime, pal. It is uh, Barry Rosner with us here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.